Hi, welcome to the Hero's Journey Economy podcast. Today, we have a very interesting author, Catherine Bab Majura, who is the author of Poe for Your Problems, Uncommon Advice from History's Least Likely Self-Help Guru. It's a funny book, but it has a lot of truth to it in that oftentimes when we look for guidance, it tends to be a little Pollyanna out there and positive thinking. Pat does in her book is she really looks at someone who's had a tremendous amount of adversity and perseveres through that and taps into that adversity, knowing that it's not always, always that easy. In fact, an argument can be made that the hero's journey often starts with a really bad situation. In movies, is seen as basic, but what we see in real life is those journeys often start with something fairly cataclysmic in people's lives. In fact, they are a major trigger to that. Uh, we don't often enter these journeys in normal life without some kind of trigger. Many of these triggers either being a diagnosis or a loss of a loved one or a divorce or you know things that aren't good. Edgar Allan Poe, he had an enormously tragic life from one thing to another, persevered as well as anyone could. Maybe it's not for everyone, but some people could tap into that, into that energy. The name of the book is Poe for Your Problems, Uncommon Advice from History's Least Likely Self-Help Guru. And and our guest today is Catherine Bob Majura. Hey, welcome, Catherine, to the podcast. Really enjoyed your book, Poe for Your Problems. So you take a look at Edgar Allan Poe's approach to life or just what happened in his life as a toolkit for how we should deal with our lives, correct? Yeah, that's true. And the fun thing about this project, maybe the unexpected thing about it, is that most people don't think of Edgar Allan Poe as a hero. If they know him, they tend to know the Raven, and they associate him with this poetry about grief that's very theatrical and musical in nature. And yet there's this whole sort of secret history of Poe, his life as an entrepreneur, his attempts to be successful as a commercial writer, that I think actually have a lot of contemporary application, both in terms of what to do and what not to do. What got you into this idea that this would be an interesting model for advice to people? Yeah, you know, I I actually had the experience of Poe cheering me up and helping me in my own life. This kind of almost bizarre experience of it before I got the book idea. It's what led me to write the book. Basically, the story is that I grew up a little bit with Poe because I'm from Richmond too, and Poe spent formative years here. So when I was in elementary school, the teachers taught him. And I remember the first time I heard The Raven and what a kind of transformative first experience of art that was. But then I grew up and I did an English degree and I did an MA. And actually the academy doesn't love (laughs) Poe. There are Poe scholars, but you can do an entire English degree and never encounter him on a syllabus. Really? So, yeah, it's true. He's an incredibly famous writer in that most Americans recognize his face. He's been as widely translated as it is possible to be. He has 4 million fans on Facebook. Yet, um, highbrow types don't necessarily love him. So, anyway, I fell into this terrible depression in 2016. And for the first time since I was a kid, I started reading him. Some intuition from my own dark place led me to revisit him. And I was just stunned by how much he had to offer. We all associate him as like, you know, we think of him as this dark poet. And yet it was almost like I encountered 
a sort of life coach, uh, someone who had survived his own dark experiences and produced this incredible work drawing on those experiences. And that was so inspirational to me. And it actually turns out that I'm not the first person to have this experience of rereading Poe or of coming to see him as an existential hero. This has actually always been the French view of Poe um, since uh, the poet Charles Baudelaire was writing uh, biographies and obituaries of Poe in the 1850s. So um, in our own country, though, it's really never been articulated, this idea that Poe is a hero who we could learn a lot from. So many of our creative minds out there do come from a, oftentimes a place of maybe pain or despair. You know, you, it, like I'll pick comedy. Um, you know, a, a lot of comedians do not have happy. For sure. And I mean, I think we often think that inspiration comes from some wonderful place. <laughs> That's not always the case, not at all. In fact, it may be more the exception than the rule. You get it with comedians often who are joking about the darkest things in their own life and the darkest things in the world. And it can be, I think, it's like an almost an untapped resource for so many of us where we're afraid to use those experiences to fuel our work, say in the business world or in our art. I guess a lot of bad things happen to Edgar Allan Poe from a perspective standpoint. But what's interesting is, you know, when as I read your book, I was thinking about other heroes out there, like uh, let's pick on Abraham Lincoln. He mm -hmm. he had a lot of bad things happen to him also, you know, and he had really, uh, you know, I, I think the modern analysis of him is he was very melancholy, probably suffered from what people would call depression today, mm -hmm. um, horrendous uh, setbacks in his life. Uh, we often don't mention those, you know, we, we look at I've said this on our podcast before, but I think the people we build statues for, we never really think might have had sleepless nights. You know, we... Right. It's such a strange impression. It's almost like that the typical societal view is almost childish in nature because any of us who have had an adulthood know how hard things can be and that you have periods of your life that are not happy and not Facebook worthy or what we deem to be Facebook worthy. And yet they are part of a full life. I kind of blame Hollywood on this because I think they've adopted the hero's journey story, but I think they gloss over how hard the hero's journey actually is. Like whenever the real challenging, like in the Rocky movie, when it really gets hard, that's when the inspirational move. Reality, yeah, yeah. Yeah. reality is if you're a boxer, you're training and people aren't running down the street with you. It's really, you're running, a, you're running in the dark in the cold and at 4 like, a.m yeah, before it's, your it, day job or whatever it, right it's a it's a isolating thing and it's probably one of the hardest things you could do in life is train for a boxing match and but we tend to glamorize those things when it's really those things can be very scary uncomfortable with, grueling yeah and, and with a tremendous amount of uncertainty you know uh Winston Churchill is another one I think more the more recent biographer you know I think we look at both Abraham Lincoln and, and uh I'm picking on, on uh two men but there's uh, a lot of people women in history also where we kind of gloss over their challenges and kind of go what well, look at these great people and it's just like no they had horrendous nights of self-doubt it's just we tend to gloss over it that, uh, right, we treat those things as those so that there's as they're they're a disqualification in our own lives when actually they're probably a qualification to do profound work. You're right. I mean, I'm reading a biography of Mary Shelley right now. She wrote Frankenstein, yeah. and now it's just a pop culture trope of like a lurching monster. But actually, she 
was a fallen woman in her own time who had been outcast by society because of her behavior. And she wrote it about that painful experience. So, I mean, the inspiration came from a very real and very dark place. And I mean, the same thing you get in Dickens, where when he was a child, his family fell apart and his dad was put in debtor's prison and Dickens himself at age 11 was put in a factory to work you know, 18 hours a day. So no wonder as an adult, he had so much sympathy for the poor of London. He had experienced it in a sense. If you take a look at Joseph Campbell's work on that, one of the things that Power of Myth in the videos, he said it was one of the sad things is most people don't take their hero's journey. Is, oh, which yeah. is one of the sad things about it is that people just don't step into the unknown in their own lives. But the other thing was that it, it's incredibly challenging. You come out, the idea at the end, uh, I guess Star Wars is the one that uh, George Lucas studied under Joseph Campbell. But the whole idea is that, you know, the reward at the end is you're uh, a different person than you were at the beginning. I think in the, I actually, in I think Rocky was pretty good in that you know, he actually did something he accomplished and then he realized, you know, my real journey here is to feel worthy enough to have a nice person in my life, you know, and he's, he's crying out for it at the end. So that there was some redemption there, but in most of these, it's almost make it a little bit more fantasal than, than the hero's journey really is, which is a dark journey oftentimes. I think you're dead right about that. I mean, we are familiar with this Hollywoodification of it where, all the steps are straightforward, like in Star Wars, you know, A leads to B, leads to C, leads to D. And there's like a story format that screenwriters and filmmakers are working. And there, there's a reason why it fits into these 90 minute segments, but real life is not like that. We don't experience the montage of two minutes in which we whip ourselves into shape and then we're ready for the big match or whatever. In our lives, I think it's more the case that it's hard to recognize the call to adventure it may not be, it may be one that is the most deeply unwelcome. And it may be the case that the rewards of the journey are dubious and not what you were seeking to begin with. I mean, that's far been my experience much more. I don't say that the journey is uh, not worth taking because of that, but it's certainly not that the case that we live it in a straightforward way that makes us happy. At least in the, in the pure Joseph Campbell way, these, these challenges oftentimes are not pleasant at all uh yeah stories and and they leave scars and they're horrific and you come out a different person and many times a better person for it but it's while you're going through it it's not it's not pleasurable at all and what's and i think that's what is interesting about your look at pose i think it is actually the hero's journey and that it's a little bit more authentic and that we have glossed over a lot of the our modern day heroes we've glossed over as being kind of um from another planet or, you know, not even human. Yeah. And I mean, if you scratch the surface of any great person's life, you usually find a deep vein of melancholy, a terrible childhood, uh, sometimes drinking or drug abuse or bad marriages or, you know, financial problems. Oh my God, those exist in almost every story. I think that this can help us though. I know that's kind of a dark sense, a dark source of inspiration, but it can be helpful because you recognize that you're not the only one to suffer those things. And they're not some disqualification from taking the journey and realizing your own potential. I joke in the book about realizing your potential, um, sort of going along this dark path yourself, but getting out of it what you can and fulfilling your ambitions that way. You know what I liked about this is um, oftentimes, in these, what you would consider 
self-help books or books that talk about how to get from A to B, they can get woo-woo pretty quickly, you know, like uh, deep introspection, you know, and I think with that, you lose a whole group of people, exercises that they ask people to go through, the what color is your parachute stuff, just, um, just doesn't resonate with a lot of people, right? Particularly if they're in crisis mode, some of these books can sound uh, out of sync with the way they feel. It's out of sync with our experience of the world too. I mean, look at any business leader. Do they strike you as a paragon of emotional health? Heck no. No, generally not, right? They're, the ones that are, are the exceptions rather than the role. But that also shows us that you don't necessarily have to be less neurotic or more mentally well <laughs> in order to succeed. Like that's a... It, if, if it were, that there would be so many fewer successful people. One of the things I liked about this is, uh, and, and maybe it's, uh, I'm coming in from a, from a male perspective, is that there's so many, men sometimes can feel very disenfranchised in this world, the modern world, where uh, brute force and rage are, are mm. very much out of fashion now, right? <laughs> right. It, you know, um, and, and, and it's no way to go through life. But what I think is interesting about your book is it, it kind of takes a, a, a darker look at how someone might uh, affect change in their, in their world, it may resonate with a lot of people. Like, for example, uh, getting out of bed in the morning, going to the gym, uh, I can't do that on my own. But when I think of that other person that I really don't like, I wanna, you know. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And you kind of go, I think we uh, underestimate that. And it's not even darker. It's just other ways that you can motivate yourself with like the, the chip on your shoulder, the grudge, maybe the, you know, the person you definitely want to beat out in, in a corporate world or, you know, there, there are some elements out there that do work for people that get in touch with your feeling thing. Da, da, da. Like, <laughs> it, like people kind of like, that's not me at all. You know, like, and, yeah. and that some of these things that aren't talked about in a lot of books that you, you know, you walk towards that barking dog in this where you kind of like are saying, Hey, uh, these are elements of that could really be very beneficial to helping people. I totally think so. I mean, you're right. We have a spectrum of impulses and there's a positive end and there's a more negative end. I don't think that we can dispense with half the spectrum. I think we should try to make use of things like resentment, jealousy, rivalry, our own impulses to do other people down even. Now, I don't say that we should do other people down, but rage can get you out of bed in the morning. Rage can get you into the gym, into the office before anybody else in non-COVID times. It can cause you to put more work in. I mean, this was a case with Poe's own life where he felt he had, he had a huge chip on his shoulder. He also was a very hubristic thinker who had a giant ego, but all these things work for him. And I think yeah. if we wait to be emotionally healthy, we'll never get there. So we just take our dark impulses now and look at ways we could channel them. One of the things I thought was interesting is, in, and, and I'm maybe not paraphrasing this right, so correct me, but the whole idea of uh, maybe embrace delusionment a little in that uh, Mike Berbigula, he's a comedian and he, oh, he right. wrote a, and, and he's, he's been very upfront that he's been a successful comedian, but for a good part of his career, he wasn't, none of his family really thought he was very, you know, like <laughs> he wasn't getting a lot of positive yeah. feedback. And he's like, I think I can do this. And he's like, either I'm right or I'm delusional, <laughs> you know, like, like I'm like totally off. And I think sometimes he, he's just a funny example of someone who really no, no one thought he would be a successful, maybe they did, but he's painting a picture 
that he wasn't getting that feedback from a lot of people. Like they were being nice about it, but I don't think they thought he was going to be successful. And that the whole idea of, Hey, you know, if you're going to do some of this, it, you, you may have to, you may have to be a little like Poe and, and be a little delusional about, of things. Yeah. I mean, outside self-esteem is very helpful and it's also very helpful to have no real sense of a field before you dive into it. <laughs> like the reason that that's helpful is because if, say you're starting a podcast or wanting to get a book deal or running a startup or any of that, if you knew how hard it was, if you really understood the nitty gritty aspects of it and how grueling it can be, you would never do it. Right. So it's much better to jump in with both feet right at the beginning in a totally naive way, believing in yourself inordinately, because otherwise, like, I don't know that there's a better way to go about that. And besides, you're, I mean, in any field of endeavor and anything that's worth doing, there's so much rejection. And that's whether you're an actor or a YouTuber or what have you, you know, there's rejection and competition everywhere. So we need, in a sense, to, to have egos to keep doing this at all. Some of the self-help books categorize as fake it till you make it. But in the pole world, it, it's, it's much more deliberate. Like, no, you got to, you got to believe, to your point, I've talked to so many entrepreneurs that say, that if I knew how hard this was going to be, I would have never done it. Like, and, and oh gosh, yes. that's not in the, the image of the Elon Musk or the Steve Jobs or some of the people that we have out there that have made it. Like the, the retrospect perspective on that is always like, oh, they were predestined. And it's just like, no, nah, no, <laughs> they were, no, they not were at never. All. Yeah, it's no, they just maybe never gave up. Right. And I mean, neither of those, and I'm a Tesla shareholder, I'm an Apple shareholder now that I think of it too. I mean, neither of those personalities strike me as necessarily healthy ones, balanced ones, people with a sense of proportion or an ego in check. Of course not. I mean, there are examples of these principles in action, the ones we're discussing about using the, what you might call the diseased parts of your personality to succeed. I know you might have approached this at first, it's, from reading forward, that this was like a funny idea, and then you started to dig into it and say, no, there, there's something here. But mm -hmm. it's all, they all tend to be a little like uh, pixie dust, you know, when it comes to how you really do it. Yeah. Uh, digging into some of those darker elements or... I, I think people don't like to recommend <laughs> and really and, and, and to probably stay far away from because it's uh, it's not something that. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not advocating anything that I uh, consider to be immoral or unethical, right. but I do think it's important to recognize these parts of ourselves rather than ignore them. Otherwise you're like sort of playing with half a deck or playing with only using half the keyboard. Um, I think, I don't know, when I, when I set out to write the book, you're right, I did start it as a dark joke. But as I went on, I had a lot of fun satirizing your typical self-help, your get up early, I don't know, work hard, grind, all that, because it's not even observably true that those things necessarily work. I mean, look at Elon Musk and his PT Barnum Act. That's wildly successful, and yet it's not in any CEO book, you know, a recommended book of behavior at all. And yet it's incredibly effective. Take a look at some of the other people out there that you ask them how they made it. What's interesting is how often someone will say luck, just the right sure. timing on, on things. They look at it and going, there was a lot of happenstance that had to happen. Uh, it wasn't, there was, there's no formula. And they, they feel part of it was their work, but a lot of them just say, 
hey, I was at the this right point and I saw something um, and I tried it and a lot of other people tried it and I was maybe lucky with what happened. <laughs> it's- For sure. I mean, there's an element of kismet and I also, I mean, I think to that point, it's sometimes the case that bad luck can work for us. Like an example from Poe's life is he, he named his literary executor as the guy who hated him most in the world. And he wasn't totally aware of how much this guy hated him. But as soon as Poe died, this man, Rufus W. Griswold, rushed out a biography, uh, an obituary within two days, slandering Poe in the worst way, basically calling him a depraved drunk and the devil incarnate who no one would mourn. That's a terrible thing to have happened to you after you die, whether you can know it or not, uh, to be slandered like that. And yet the effect of it was to create so much notoriety around Poe that he almost instantly became much, much more famous. So it's a case of bad press working for you, bad luck working for you. Some authors, Emily Dickinson, weren't famous in their time. Was he famous in his time? He was a well-known literary critic, in part because he was so cruel as a critic. He sort of was trolling the literary world in order to bring attention to himself. And The Raven was quite a big splash when it came out in 1845. You could think of it almost as a pop hit. It Mm. circulated widely in the U.S. and Europe. But he never attained the level of fame that he sought. No, not at all. Interesting in that... The whole idea of the murder mystery is something that he pioneered. Uh, like the whole detective, I mean, it's crazy to think that there was a time where the detective story did not exist in our literary uh, world. And he kind of came up with that and it started, you know, Sherlock Holmes, you know, like, you know, mm-hmm. and modern day TV shows. But he was the person who kind of said, okay, there's been this crime and, and uh, we're going to, I'm going to write a story about it. It's true. And, I think this is a really a story of a, a very canny adaptation to the market brought on by incredibly crappy circumstances. I read an article about the Wall Street, for the Wall Street Journal about this and the example of Poe's life, but basically it was the case that at the time when Poe was writing, intellectual property law was such that writers didn't enjoy copyright for their works. The work could be pirated in Europe, European authors' work could be pirated in the US, and this drove down rates. For work, it made it harder to get published, and harder to make a living. So Poe was constantly trying to invent new things in order to eke a little bit of money out of the market. Like imagine if you had no um, right to your intellectual property, you'd probably be innovating like crazy so as to outpace things. And this was the case with the detective story. It's how he got there. He was working in commercial genres and he would take elements from one and elements from another and marry them into weird new stories just in order to make nine or ten dollars in 1840 and it, it's become you, you look at it and kind of go okay that's dark it's it was a, a murder mystery but it's interesting how common now murder mysteries are part of our you know you take a look at like uh i don't want to pick on law and order but law and order started like it was a mainstream tv show for i don't know like 20 years but like that show started with a murder at the beginning <laughs> Like they found, like these people were walking in Central Park, they'd find a body, like it mm-hmm. was like you knew the formula, but it was just like that kind of is a very dark story, but now it's almost become almost mainstream from his origin there of, of the detective story. There's so many TV shows that are, are really the legacy of his original story. Yeah, it's true. And I mean, one of the, one thing that jumps out to me in it is that Poe understood 
that he basically had no leeway with his audience. He had to jump into it, get grisly and gothic and weird and shocking right away. Right? That's why, I mean, and we have adopted that as a narrative strategy ever since. If you want to keep people's, grab people's attention and keep it, you don't get a lot of time. Right. So for instance, with law and order, why is there always a murder or a crime or some horrible thing going on within the first few seconds or even minutes of the show, right? They're just using the same strategy. It's a good one. Yeah. So I loved your book because it did really talk about some of the, the darker elements. What, what do you think he would think of his image now? He's known as being like the precursor to a Stephen King, you know, really pioneering um, those stories, which are, some of his stories are just amazing. Like I take a look at uh, the whole idea of a pirate treasure map was in one of his short stories. Right. And that's become like a thing. Now. But it was, it that wasn't a thing with pirates. You know, it like they buried, it was rare that they would ever hide their treasure. They had to do it. But like mm -hmm. he wrote about the idea of a map and that's like now a, a whole genre out there as far as a, a map that leads to something, you know, and he just, sure. and that's just from one short story that he wrote. And I, I just, the legacy that he's left out there is, is uh, much broader than maybe he gets uh, credit for. I think that's true. And I mean, the upside in that for us is he wrote the gold book, but the story you're talking about, he totally wrote that story for money. He was making a cynical, calculated guess about the market and what would please the editors as well. And he actually, he made more on that story than I think he made for any other single story. And it was wildly successful in its time. It was pirated all over, literally pirated. Uh, but it's another example of sometimes, you know, instead of following your own artistic vision and insisting on it above all else, which we're often told is the way to success, sometimes studying the market and just writing to the white hot center of what people want, that can really work. I mean, look, it's where he's still read now 170 years later. Yeah. The author, Michael Crichton, I guess, you know, his, you know, who wrote Jurassic Park and, and mm -hmm. a lot of famous stories, uh, he he admitted that when he was alive, that he wanted to write a best-selling book. He felt he had one in him. And he just studied all the different things that were in best-selling books. And he wrote one that incorporated all those. <laughs> and maybe pandering a little, but he's like, I'm going to have to have all these elements in this story mm -hmm. because that's what makes a story. And he, st he totally studied the market. And, he, and I think he used that in every one of his books. He's kind of like, okay, this is, this is the formula that people kind of expect, which is interesting that Poe was way ahead of his time in that. That's true. I mean, it, it's not necessarily the case that artists work comes out of some absolutely beautiful, you know, non-market concerned area. I don't, I don't think that it's necessarily the case. It doesn't mean that Crichton's not an artist simply because he wrote for the market. I actually, I, you often encounter that assumption and it's one I really loathe because I think it's such a mistake about how the sausage gets made. What do you think is the biggest lesson that his life, that we could take from his life out of all the things that he endured, the, the writings that he wrote? Uh, what do you think is a, either something that's well known about him or, or maybe like a understated lesson of, of his life that, that we could take from? I think that it kind of goes back to the beginning of our conversation and we talked about how often with famous or successful or highly influential people that we have a kind of child's version of their biographies in our mind. With Poe, 
he dealt with so much tragedy in his life. His parents died before he was three. He fell out with his informally adoptive family. He lost his wife to the same disease that had killed his parents. It's just a chain of tragedy and loss. And he experienced a lot of professional disappointment and horrible financial crises, just one after the other. That could sound like the darkest and most hope hopeless tale. But Poe is actually a hopeful, a hopeful figure, an inspirational figure, if you ask me, because in spite of those things, maybe even because of them, he created this body of work that influences us to this day, that is so vastly influential, it's hard to even account for. And his the tragedy of his life didn't keep him from doing that. I mean, for hopefully none of us will deal with that level of tragedy or constancy of tragedy in our lives. But I think it's an example that shows us that no matter what happens to us, we can still accomplish our life's work. Like even in the direst circumstances, it's possible to do that. <clears throat> From reading your book, and you know, I've read his stories, but didn't know a lot about his life. So I learned a lot from reading your book. But the, the perseverance, just like continuing on, like mm -hmm. where other people may have uh, given up is, uh, is really something that is very admirable because he, he, nothing, nothing was given to him. You know, there are, I, I guess there are, there are artists out there that are born of wealth and create things and, and uh, do great work and never suffer at all possibly. But he was just the total opposite of that where nothing seemed to go right for him. I mean, talk about grit. And he had so much raw grit. We don't recognize this about him, but I mean, greatness, I'm not sure greatness happens another way. I would also say that grit, that stick to and doggedness, it came from grief, resentment, a feeling of not having been recognized, a out outright hatred of his successful peers, and a desire to revenge you know, old hurts and that sort of thing. So it wasn't coming from a pure place and yet it works spectacularly well. It flies in the face of positive thinking. It makes you think that we also might be able to tap into those sources in ourselves and use them for energy and inspiration and the strength to keep going. I think when people go to a store and buy one of those books, I think oftentimes they're in a part of their life of crisis mm -hmm. that I don't know if the author of that book oftentimes appreciates you know uh, you know so it's kind of like okay you can get through this blah 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 you know it kind of soft soaps uh, the whole idea of mm -hmm. really uh, how bad things are even if even if from a perspective standpoint it's not that bad it this kind of kind of digs right into it and kind of says hey you know what uh, bad things happen there's some lessons to be learned from that uh, as opposed to you know the perennial uh, optimism uh, lessons, because I, I, I don't know if that's, I don't know if, if optimism is something that we can necessarily rely on for very long. And uh, I think there's a lot to that. I mean, I'm not even, I, I, I'm not even not an optimist myself. I, I would call it a kind of tempered optimism, hopefully a wide-eyed real world optimism. But it, I mean, I agree with you about the self-help shelf. I've definitely, I've read many self-help books at dark moments of my own life where I was seeking some kind of guidance. And one reason I wrote this one is because I never encountered a book that was meeting me where I really was. Yeah. 
I think it was the person who wrote Atomic Habits, but uh, the idea that if uh, you, let's say something basic, like you want to go to the gym every morning, if you wait for that feeling of wanting to go to the gym every morning, you're never going to go to the gym. You know? yeah. it's, and I think that's something that uh, your book kind of lays out is like, you know, you're just going to have to, you're going to have to grit this out and, and no one's going to help you. And uh, it's, right. it's about his writing is it, it was kind of dark and scary, but the world can be dark and scary to a lot of people. I mean, it can be a great place, but to mm-hmm. to polish it up and say it's not a dark and that we really have a lot of uncertainty, loss, and risk in the world, mm-hmm. and those can be overwhelming for a lot of people, even if things are going well. To think that those don't exist and that everything's going to be fine is not good advice. <laughs> I think Poe really kind of looks at it as uh, you know what this is how I see it. It's, it's much darker and all you got is yourself and, and perseverance and ability to get through this. And I think it shows us too that, I mean, Poe's, like you said, Poe's work is extremely dark. It also happens totally by chance and coincidence to speak to tens of millions of people, right? We connect to it. And it shows us the power of connecting through dark material and making use of that dark territory. It's probably understated as to where this could fit in the pantheon of different types of books that people can be reading, particularly people that where the traditional self-help books have fallen flat. This kind of lays it out, kind of saying, this might be what you're feeling. And this is, uh, for a huge amount of people, be helpful because I, I don't know if it, those other ones land correctly. Uh, so I, I appreciate you kind of digging. I know it started off as a joke, but I'm starting to read this. As, as I started to go through it, I'm like, you know, this is, this, this is really helpful, particularly particularly for people that don't necessarily gravitate to more of the woo-woo stuff, mm-hmm. because I think a lot of that self-help gets into that. This is a little bit, this is a totally different lens on how to get through something. And I think uh, I appreciate you making, the, making this available because I think it, you really did, dug into this and said, you know, this, this may not be for you, but this worked for him. And it may work for a huge portion of the population that maybe doesn't gravitate to traditional self-help. I hope so, certainly. It's selling pretty well. Um, It's not like a runaway blockbuster at this stage. Another thing I think is that most self-help isn't funny enough. Like you're right, it it started off as a joke, but it was a very dark joke at the time. I mean, I had been so depressed and I got sucked into Poe and I found that he was cheering me up and I was telling a friend we were out having a beer and I told him like, the weirdest thing is happening. Poe is cheering me up. And my friend said, that sounds like a book. And then I said, oh yeah. And I'm going to call it how to say never more to your problems. It was just a dark joke about this dark time in my life. But I think maybe that can be a really useful (laughs) source of self-help. I mean, if people go looking for the book, they're going to find it in the humor section of the Barnes and Noble. But the truth is that I actually do intend a seriousness to this as well. Oh, yeah, no, that's one thing, because I started reading it going, okay, I'm going to read this, because I think it's interesting, but I'm not sure if this is funny or if it's sincere, and it's just like, okay, it's both, and, uh, you know, so you're you're kind of poking fun at the the self-help, but at the same time, you're offering up some real tangible advice. I kind of wish it was in the self-help book area because I think it's something that it could help a lot of people. I really do think that in that uh, it, a lot of the things you mentioned are often up as uh, perspectives 
in some of this. Uh, just like, uh, you know, some of those darker elements do help people get through stuff. And, uh, and I think that is something that people have relied on you take it let's pick on steve jobs steve jobs got kicked out of apple mm -hmm. that didn't drive him to be successful you know uh he, he started a company and he was removed you know like right. almost physically removed from the company he was like kicked out of the company yeah and then they brought him back <laughs> uh, like if that wasn't some kind of motivation i mean and it wasn't something right? that was done quietly he was a nationally known figure at that time famous when it happened and, oh, I'm sure yeah, it's just and, humiliating and enraging and you come back with a very long list of people that you need to take shots at I mean metaphorical right? shots it is uh some of the elements that you point out in the book are great motivational tools that um, I found going you know what I probably don't do that as much as I probably should and I think it not nothing nothing evil nothing Ooh. bad but just like a, a mindset that's maybe a little bit tougher or edgier something that taps into like you're right if you don't these are huge emotions and if you don't tap into some of these you're kind of wasting them right or, or you're trying true. to push or you're trying to push them down and ignore they're not there did, did mark zuckerberg make facebook because that girl broke up with him you know like he, i mean you know, yeah and he made it because he was a nerd in high school who wanted to stare at girls online yes absolutely right so some of those and he like and i think he says that didn't happen but it's like well i a lot of people mm, think probably is more of a role in, there than he would want to admit yeah so you take a look at a lot of these successful people i think they did have motivations whether they were fired from jobs or whether they wanted to maybe prove their hometown uh, wrong or a lot of different, oh, yeah. yeah, a lot of different motivational factors that, that get into that. I think everyone has had some of that where they've been wronged in the past so that you can, in a very internal way, tap into that. Nothing violent against that, <laughs> against that person, mm -hmm. but just something that you kind of say, okay, that person did me wrong. I, I can actually tap into that emotion I have towards that person to move me along my journey. Yeah, and I mean, that is just being a human, having those feelings, right? And resenting other people, having frenemies or what have you, that's existed for all of time. It is a part of our universal human nature, and it doesn't make you a bad person for those things occurring to you. Where you would actually go wrong, it, you know, is doing any sort of violence in real yeah, life, yeah, but yeah. also, yes, obviously not advocating that, but in failing to use those emotions, I mean, they're so powerful. I often think, and I mean, this is not a strategy that's alien to me, and I recommend it in the book. All right, thinking of uh, frenemies from your past or like having a rival that you just compete with in your own head, I, I think that can be enormously useful. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you've probably had, because I had this, the person that you really don't like coming to your book signing and, and buying one of your books, right? From your past, <laughs> you know, something like that, you know? Um, uh, we're oh kind yeah. of going, yeah, hey, you, you know, here's, here's the book. In the hero, I think in real life hero's journeys, I think one of the things that people forget about, that initial step into the hero's journey, for a lot of people, and even Joseph Campbell said this, for a lot of people, that inciting moment that Hollywood calls or, you know, is not a good thing for a lot of people in real life. Oh, yeah. Either it's a diagnosis or a job termination or a divorce or oh, yeah. that whole journey is not triggered by winning some award and saying, oh, now I got to do something better. It's usually from some 
cataclysmic, you know, step back, something really bad happening and that triggering people into journeys. And a lot of mm-hmm. uh, people, uh, you know, Joseph Campbell said a lot of people don't take it, but a lot of people that do start with something very dark happening in their lives. It's not, uh, and, and I'll pick on Star Wars a little. It starts off with this young boy complaining about, you know, he's got a boring life and he wants mm-hmm. more adventure in his life. Da, da, da. And then this person comes and says, hey, we have an opportunity to save this princess. And in that story, he kind of goes, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, he pretty much says, I don't want to do that. I got stuff to do. I got farm work to do. And he goes back home and his family's been killed. And mm-hmm. he's like, George Lucas built that in and that most people say no to the challenge. And yeah, there's a they, refusal of the call, generally speaking. Yeah, and, and oftentimes the trigger into the call is is not something that you would have... It, it's something that's overlooked oftentimes is that initial uh, stepping into the journey is not triggered by something that anyone would have really wanted. Uh, that's so and, true. And yet, like, I think in our own lives, we try to dispense with our darker motivations. Oh, yeah, uh, right. And, and, and we I kind think, of mistake the nature of the whole thing. You know, I've talked uh, on this podcast a lot about this, is that we really seek comfort in our lives. Like, we live in a very comfortable world, for, mm-hmm. at least in this, in our country, uh, we do. And we live in maybe extreme comfort. You know, you can watch a mo- any movie you want traveling 500 miles an hour in the air, you know, mm-hmm. and in mm-hmm. a very comfortable seat. And we get upset if any of that gets thrown off. And, oh, and like, like it, there are no peanuts, only pretzels? My God. You know, so, <laughs> and then when anything disruptive comes in, it's it's actually considered bad rather than something that's uh, an opportunity. And I think what Poe was like, I, he had no option. I mean, these things came at him right. faster than, uh, these bad things came at him faster than one of those things would be enough in, uh, a person's life, but he just had a succession of things. Absolutely. I, I mean, one thing that bothers me in typical self-help is this notion of gratitude, keep a gratitude journal. In the book, I somewhat, only somewhat satirically suggest that we should practice gratitude for our grievances, because oftentimes what bugs us the most is what spurs us the most, rather than, you know, getting your perfect Diet Coke on a plane won't change your life. But having some experience that's deeply unpleasant, deeply uncomfortable and undesired, that can really break everything open for you. Whether you decide to change at that point or it's two years later when you realize you need to, having refused the call. We really dug into that in the book and I found that very interesting because I think, I'll speak to myself, some of those more humiliating, embarrassing things, I really try and push off as, uh, not bury them, but kind of like, okay, that. But you start to dig into that, and all of a sudden you're mm-hmm. like, "Well, wait a minute, I should have done something really different there, and I'm gonna, you know, that, you know, like I'm gonna do something different now because of that, and uh, like almost ignoring the call at that point because it's uh, either humiliating or uncomfortable." I think we should all develop our own files of total cringe experiences from our own lives that we can click into and browse through at the moment where we don't, it's a morning in January where we don't feel like getting up at five and going to the gym, you know, where we want to call and cancel with the trainer, whatever, because remembering some high school humiliation or somebody who dumped you in college or a job interview in which you embarrassed yourself, that's what's going to give you (laughs) the idea to grit your teeth and change something now. Um, rather than, you know, waiting to feel like, oh, everything's perfect in my life. Now I'm going to change it. What's next for you? This was a great book. I really enjoyed reading it. I mean, I'd like to do this again, in a sense. Like, I, I don't think there's enough 
uh, content for this kind of dark self-help that, you know, uses despair, depression, anxiety, disappointment in order to <laughs> create punchlines and motivation. Uh, I'd like to see more of that just because I want to be able to consume more of it and I find it rewarding to spend time with. So I'm hoping to do a little bit more of that. Um, so my childhood dream was to write novels and that is still a thing I have not been able to do. I've never gotten a book deal for a novel. So I'm still hustling on that. And one, it's a useful lesson. And this isn't a misimpression that I had before too. I thought you sell one book. Oh, all of a sudden you can do whatever you want. And the publisher just says, yeah, <laughs> that's not true. Um, you still have to put together book proposals for nonfiction projects. You still have to really hustle to sell a novel. So that's that's what I'm up to now. I have okay. a day job as well and a baby. So this oh. happens piecemeal on the side. Well, I really appreciate you being part of this podcast because here's here's one big takeaway from the book for me. Is, you know, whether you're well, that struggle with uh, anxiety, depression, any kind of it doesn't have to be clinically diagnosed, but just stuff that burdens you. For some people that can be crippling, right? But, you know, uh, the advice I've gotten with some of this is like, you know what, it's going to be there and you're going to have to manage through this, whatever it is. And what I think your book really highlights, which I've never heard anywhere, was like, no, this is a resource you can actually tap into. And it's just like, it's here. It's not going away. You don't like it. Let's let's pick it off the shelf and and uh, make it another like arrow in the quiver as far as trying to get. And I think that's an interesting perspective that I've not heard anywhere uh, before because I think a lot of it's like, yeah, that's a negative thought, but guess what? Uh, you're still going to have to put that there and then focus on this positive stuff. That's what's going to have. That's what's going to get you through it. And you're like, no, no, no. Tap into that. <laughs> tap, in, right. tap, tap into those things that aren't going away that are really troubling you. Yeah, that's it. That's your that's your power, and and, uh, and and go after that. And there might be some really interesting things that happen from that. For me, that was my big takeaway from the book. And I uh, I've never heard got a lot of people on my podcast. I've never heard anybody even reference that type of of, of type of help. But I know it's helped you, and I I just have a sense that it could help a lot of people out there that don't one gravitate to maybe some of the woo woo stuff, but also really have these things present in their life. And they, and I think they have a feeling like, unless I get rid of this, I'm never going to get, oh, right. it's just like, you know, that's their feeling, right? I have to feel normal for me to be able to create, or I have to feel better for me to get to the, and it's just like, guess what? No, that's, no. <laughs> it's not one, you, it, that's not going to happen. You might as well like where you are right now, tap into that and use it for what is, it's extremely powerful. I, I really love that. that oh, whole, thank you so much. Because I haven't heard that anywhere. And have you heard it anywhere? I've not. I've heard the optimistic, at one point in the book, I say, and I think this is actually true, that what you need to do is not deny or suppress the neurotic aspects of your personality, but seek to activate your neuroses at a far greater level. Uh, I mean, that's kind of a joke on Tony Robbins, who says you need to activate these positive, like willful parts of yourself. I'm like, hey, I don't know that I have those, Tony, <laughs> like, uh, but I do have all this depression and anxiety and despair lying around. What could I do with that? Like, how can I make a mud pie of this? That's what I need. That's the advice I need. I think that's a lot of people, though. 
let's face it if if self-help is one of those things if it really worked it would have put itself out of business a long time ago right so, so true. um like there shouldn't be that many books out there on this uh, otherwise so it's not help. some of that's not helping is as much I, i'm sure it's helping some people but i think your book actually particularly maybe there's a lot of elements here that men would really latch on to <laughs> you know because they do have those uh, at least I think in, in, uh, in, the, in the primal world that we live in, I think a lot of these instincts are maybe stronger in men. I don't want to get into a uh, issue, but I think, you know, the rage. Uh, oh, the, for sure. And we know, need like outlets the, for those things. Those are real qualities of the human experience and personality. I, I don't say that men don't tend to have them more. I tend to think they do, I think you know, in too. terms of like the yeah. aggression and that sort of thing. Uh, but we have to make use of them somehow. And actually it's so much better to channel them into something than to try and act like they're not there. That's where you really get into trouble. You know? Well, yeah, because I think what we're doing right now is um, as a society, we may not even be acknowledging it and it pops out. And, and, and then, you know, like, and then uh, some, some person goes on some kind of shooting rampage and everyone's like, well, why'd they do that? And it's just like, well, here's what's happening. <laughs> you know, there's a right. lot of disenfranchised people out there that they're not hearing anything that sounds familiar to them. Or you get this whole like reactionary group of people who are so, feel so disenfranchised by this, you know, the story or the psychology of the moment that they get more extreme in their views and championing actions that maybe we shouldn't, you know. Exactly. I, I, that whole idea of being disenfranchised seems to be growing rather than being suppressed. You know, even though we're living in a much more comfortable world, people are, I think, whether it's COVID's triggering this or mm -hmm. um, maybe it's like people getting online and maybe hearing stuff that resonates with them, but maybe not in a positive way. But um, I think your book really goes into some very interesting areas where you kind of go, okay, if people tapped into some of these darker elements for good, um, it'd be a much better place. <laughs> you know? Yeah, like we should <laughs> not attempt to rein in our own BS, but use it. Right, exactly. So where can people find the book? Uh, so uh, the, the name yeah. of the book is Poe for Your Problems, right? Uncommon Advice from history's least likely self-help guru where can uh, you know i found it on i have it on my kindle but where, where else mm -hmm. can you find it yeah so it's available on amazon um my local independent bookstore uh, fountain bookstore is selling signed copies there's no extra charge so you can google that if that interests you um and then basically anywhere i mean barnes and noble will have it in the humor section like i said and you can find me at katherinebadmagira.com. I also write a newsletter that's dark self-help that goes out once a month. Oh, and it's free. I'll, I'll have to sign up for that. I didn't know you had that. That's great. Mm. And then Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you know, all the usual suspects. You can find me there. Sure. Hey, well, you know, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really enjoyed your book. I'm hoping that people pick this up. And uh, I think there's a huge swath of the population that could benefit from reading this, both from the funniness part, but also like there's some real, I think, very valuable tips in here that people could, uh, that do not resonate in a lot of things that people read out there, I think would hit on some very strong emotions that people have that, can, that they could channel it in a good way. I certainly hope so. And I really appreciate the kind words and you're having read it. This was really fun to chat to you. Thanks. And uh, have a great holiday season and a happy new year. Thank you, Mike. You too. Bye now. Bye.